Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and uh, we're deep into the clay court season. We just had the Madrid Open, which has come and gone. Now the players are over in Rome. And Mike, I think the perfect place to start is our women's doubles champions in Madrid as Gabby Dabrowski alongside Julie. Liana almost capture a big time WTA 1000. Yeah, Gabby Dabrowski doing it again for Canada. And, uh, you know, we sometimes get sidetracked. I don't mean you and me necessarily, but I feel like Canadian tennis fans, we get sidetracked by the, the flashy, shiny singles results, mm-hmm. right? And we sometimes forget to focus on the doubles. And, uh, and Gabby has just been, when you look at it over the past five years, I want to say, just throwing out a random number, but feels like it anyways, but she's been the most consistent presence among the Canadians, uh, singles or doubles, male or female during that time, and can always be counted to have a couple of big results every year, whether it's at the slams in doubles or mixed doubles or at a WTA 1000 now, which this was her third such title of her career. And uh, don't think she gets enough recognition, but I do think she's getting more recognition um, with just how solid she's been in in the past uh, few years. Yeah. And look, there's there's been a bit of a revolving door, I think, with partners. And we saw last season, I mean, the summer that she produced alongside Louisa Stefani was incredible. We talked about that at the time, uh, winning in Montreal, finals in Cincinnati, getting a, another title, I think, uh, or finals at the Silicon Valley Classic. It, it felt like she had the perfect partner. And unfortunately, sometimes sometimes things can go wrong in this sport. Stefani suffered uh, a brutal uh, lower body injury kind of late in the season so Gabby had to shift course and, and find another partner and, and Juliana almost is actually a familiar face in the sense that she's played alongside Sharon Fishman and uh, I guess she seems to just jive very well with the Canadian players because her and, and Gabby obviously have this this great partnership and it's producing. I was just thinking we should kind of adopt her as a Canadian because she played so much with Sharon Fishman and those yep. two had such um, success together what was it was it Rome a year ago that they that they yes. won? I think um, so, yeah. And now here she is with Gabby Dabrowski and having, you know, it's clicking. It didn't click at the start of the year. Like they went out early at the Aussie Open. They had a couple other first or second round exits after that as they were, I guess, trying to find their chemistry together. Right. But now it's definitely uh, clicking with a good result in uh, Indian Wells at the semifinals there. Mm-hmm. Um, and now this one as well. So that's terrific. We should probably, not probably, we should definitely uh, reach out to Juliana almost and talk to her about, you know, the success she's had with both of our veteran Canadians doubles players, because uh, I think it will be interesting to find out h- how did she kind of switch over to uh, to Gabby? How did that come to mm-hmm. be? Obviously, Sharon's on the sidelines right now and had a shoulder injury that's kept her out for a while. Um, so Juliana almost uh, kind of put a little asterisk there, a little Canadian flag uh, next to, to her home country's flag, because, uh, yeah, she seems like we've we've kind of adopted her. And And it's going so well. So excited to see what these two can do now with French Open uh, approaching. And, um, and, you know, Gabby's going to be in the mix and in mixed doubles uh, there as well. Yeah, yeah. And she she seems to love the clay, which is great. And uh, third time's a charm, which she uh, shared on social media, because this was her third time in the Madrid Open finals, and finally capturing uh, that big time trophy. So congrats to Gabby Dabrowski and Juliana Olmos. There is so much big tennis to get to a lot of storylines. And we'll start and stick with the women's side. And uh, a big time title, I would say the best of her career, because it's her first WTA 1000. Uh, Anstra Burr, she was not someone that I pegged as you know, a top contender heading into the week for Madrid, but she just played some fabulous tennis 
this week. And for me, she's such a great representative of the sport on the women's side. And like this trailblazer, I think for Arab tennis, she's so likable, has this great personality. And it, it's it's great to see her win win a big title as she defeated Jessica Pagula in the final to win Madrid. Yeah, she's so well-liked by her peers. And uh, as much as results count and as much as I love focusing on the tennis and what we see on court, for me to kind of get behind a player or enjoy seeing the success they have, I have to respect them as well on a certain level. Yeah, And uh, I didn't so much have that mentality as a kid, as I definitely like John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors, <laughs> who were kind of brats and, and spoiled sports at times, but uh, that kind of attracted me in some way as a kid because I may have had that side to me as well on the court growing up as a child. Uh, but, you know, now that I'm a bit older and can appreciate sort of the, the players that, um, you know, fly under the radar, aren't as flashy off the court with the headlines or the sensational stuff, yeah. um, but just get it done and are kind and respectful and, and have the um, admiration of their peers. Someone like an Ash Barty, an Ange Jabeur, uh definitely fit into that category as well. And um, and she's had a great couple of years going up the rankings. I mean, you and me have talked about some great women's tennis players since the start of the pandemic, like Paula Bedosa, Maria mm -hmm. Zachary, uh, Jessica Pagula, who we'll talk about a little bit later as well, and Anz Jabur, who have all really um, seized this time period and, and brought out their best games. And I remember a few years ago, Jabur had you know, maybe a good early round win at the French Open. I can't remember right now who it was against, but I tweeted something out about, and I included her in kind of like a collage of pictures of women player, uh, female players that I thought were on the right track uh, to success on the WTA. And I remember someone roasted me on Twitter for that, that take. And I don't know for why. Jabur. I, yeah, for Jabur, they're like, oh, we kind of agree with your other ones, but what are you talking about on Jabur? And so <laughs> yeah. I guess it's a bit of a delayed uh, reaction in terms of her reaching that upper echelon of the women's game and who's to say when those things will or if they'll happen. But uh, it kind of feels like for me a little vindication. And I don't remember who yeah. went after me on Twitter, but if you're listening, aha, I was right on this one. And uh, I think Jabur is uh, going to be a consistent presence in the top 20 or so on the women's game, the way things have been going for her. Yeah, definitely. And and this is a back to her career high of, of number seven with this result. And this, the standout wins for me in this tournament, uh, I mean, the big standout win, honestly, uh, Simona Halep looks so good early on. And I kind of sense like, is anybody going to stop Halep? She looks like rejuvenated with this new coaching partnership with Murata Glue, or it seems like she's in vintage form, what we saw kind of 2017 through 2019. And then Jabur beat her 6-3, 6-2 in that quarterfinal. And, um, you know, comfortably past Alexandrova in the semis and uh, an interesting final seven, five love six, six, two, always impressive to rebound after uh, getting bageled in a second set. Uh, it's a very up and down final against Jessica Pagula, who we should mention is also closing in on the top 10. Now, I believe she is up to number 12. So um, she's certainly on the right track. I got to say, I'm very impressed with Pagula. Like I always view her as, a very strong, like one of those strong American hardcore players that were kind of in that early portion of the season. She always seems to play great in Australia. Then you think she's going to be maybe dangerous in the summer swing when we have tournaments in the States and uh, she's proving her worth as well on, on the clay. Yeah. I feel like I go off on a little bit of an American tennis tangent here, but overall it really seems men's and women's down South is getting stronger. Uh, and the female yeah. side has been stronger in recent years, but even in the absence of Serena and Venus Williams, who were admittedly near the end of their career, if not at the end of the career, we hope not. We hope to see, you know, good things from both of them, especially with Serena saying that she's going to be back at Wimbledon this year. But 
in the absence, there there has been a strong core of American players. Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys have had success at the slams in recent years, going deep, winning slams. Uh, and then there's a, a strong contingent of American players, and Pagula is in that mix, who have been getting it done. And on the men's side as well, look at what Taylor Fritz did just, uh, what, a month or so ago. Um, I, I feel like the Americans have reason to be excited about Definitely. what's happening there after a lull. Certainly on the men's side, there's been a lull since Andy Roddick retired. And uh, and put Pagula now at the top of that. Is she the, the top-ranked American singles player at the moment? Uh, Daniel Collins is number nine. So, and I mean, yeah, Aussie Open finalist uh, at the start of the year. So that's another, another name, of course. She's number nine. And then we have Pagula number 12. And of course, uh, Coco Goff is inside the top 20 as well. Right, right. And I mean, look, the States has 10 times the population that we have here in Canada. So yes. obviously, just by virtue of numbers and the fact that, you know, tennis is, is more of a sport there. They don't have in many places, the same lengthy winters that we have here. Um, so they're going to have more of a presence, but they've got a ton of players in the top 100, especially on the female side. So yeah. lots of reason to be envious about what's going on there. Of course, they would love to have, uh, you know, some more slam wins, especially on the men's side. And we'll see what happens there. I hey, I would still take the Canadian crew over the American crew because I like the excitement uh, and the potential of, you know, our two to three on the women's side and singles, two to three on the men's side and singles and what they're capable of producing at their best. So I would certainly take what we've got. Yeah. But it's nice to see a country that has that kind of depth too, which is a real luxury when it comes to, you know, international competitions when there's injuries and, and things like that. Definitely, definitely. We we love uh, hyping up that rivalry too. Anytime we get US versus Canada in some international stage in any sport, uh, tennis for one, I, I think it's it makes for an awesome storyline. We got to talk about Bianca Andreescu. She, of course, made her return the previous week in Stuttgart. And uh, I, I felt like she continued some great form, honestly, uh, in Madrid, particularly second match. In fact, Daniel Collins, who I just mentioned, she uh, played her in her second round and just steamrolled her 6-1, 6-1. Collins maybe didn't look right. And I, I don't know if there was some issue with maybe an injury sort of lagging from a couple months ago she didn't look so sharp but I thought Bianca was hitting just really crisp really clean looking confident I think that layoff you know the mental break did did her wonders because she's clearly embracing and enjoying herself on the court so getting a win like that should be a big confidence boost beating a top 10 player and then of course no shame losing to Jessica Pagula, who who reached the finals and a tight first set 7-5 before falling 6-1 in the second. So uh, she looks in good form and building up match play. I, I don't know what we set expectations for French Open yet, but like it, it's just nice to see her playing well. Uh, anything could happen. Uh, the progress could continue slowly or she could have a breakout similar to when she came back at Indian Wells a year or two ago. Sure. Uh, it's been a small sample size so far, but if we look at Stuttgart, where she won the first round match, a tight one in the first set as she's shaking off the rust in a tie break. And then she goes up against number three seed, world number four, Arena Sabalenka, and pushes that to a third set. I thought that was extremely positive. Yep. Madrid, she takes out Alison Risk in three sets in the first round. And Alison Risk is no slouch. That's a tough player. Mm -hmm. She's always game and going to give you a good battle. Uh, Andrescu gives her a bagel in the third set. You just mentioned how she steamrolled Collins, 6-1, 6-1. And then comes up against Pagula, who made it all the way to the finals, a top uh, 10 almost player as well. And, you know, 7-5 in the first set was certainly respectable. So interested to see how it goes from here. But uh, I think so far you got to be pleased with the steps that she's taking. And her next match, and depending on when you listen to this, uh, mm -hmm. but she's up against 10th seated Emma Raducanu. 
and some interesting parallels between these two players in terms and Bianca acknowledged that uh, in press as well yesterday that you know both are born in Ontario both won the U.S. Open as teenagers and uh, she says she's really looking forward has been looking forward to playing her and I would put the match at um, almost even to be perfectly honest yeah. with you I don't know about you yeah, I, I think it's a bit of a pick'em, to be honest. And Emma Raducanu, I, I think she has been somewhat of a victim of some unfair press that we saw the ascent and we saw what she did as a wild card. Keep in mind uh, at the U.S. Open uh, as a qualifier, sorry, I should say, um, her spectacular out of nowhere run. You know, one of the most improbable runs I think in tennis history, winning the U.S. Open, and people maybe after she did that expected just a simple trajectory up. Like she wasn't going to have the usual trials and tribulations of any pro player who hadn't even played a pro season yet when she was at that U.S. Open. And I look at her season now and she has some decent wins and has a lot of tough three set losses where I feel like that's kind of a mental hurdle more than anything for her to just gain a little confidence and tough out a few big wins. You look at like Indian Wells and Miami loses to Martich 7-5 in the third or second match. Miami, she lost to Siniakova 7-5 in the third. Again, a match where she, I think, had won the first set. Um, but I, I think she's playing good tennis. We remember in Stuttgart, she actually pushed Biontech in a couple sets and she just won a couple of matches in Madrid. So I feel like her form is coming around. It might not be U.S. Open form, but you're right. I, I think this is almost a coin flip match and kind of differing styles. Raducanu can cover the court exceptionally well, really strong, strong backhand. And I think Bianca is just kind of try and dictate with that big forehand. So I think it's stylistically and also a very interesting match. And whatever happens next with Raducanu in her career, honest to God, I could care less. And what I mean by that is she will always be a U.S. Open champion. That's right. Nobody's taken that away from her. <laughs> Same with Bianca. You know, nobody can touch that. No matter what happens next, she's always got that. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I don't expect anything when I see her name in the draw any more so than any other player of that age with with talent. And I understand there's going to be I, – I just – People just suck sometimes. <laughs> like people just yeah. those people just don't get it. And those are people that are gonna hate no matter who, you know. So just whatever. To heck with them. And mm -hmm. um, you know, happy to to see her, yeah, starting to grow and evolve as a as a professional tennis player. Hundred uh, percent. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. Find us on Instagram, Matchpoint Canada. We are also on YouTube and Facebook. I think the storyline of the week, and he's becoming, I would say, the storyline in tennis for the season. What Carlos Alcaraz is doing. I mean, we never like to get too caught up in the hype train. Uh, when we see a couple big results, we see a young hotshot player, but it, it's getting to the point where how can you not be compelled and simply amazed by what this Spanish teenager is producing on the tennis court? And here in Madrid, he beats Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic back to back. Uh, in the quarters and the semis before um, blowing past Sasha Zverev 6-3-6-1 to hoist the title uh, biggest of his career. First player since David Nalbandian to take out Nadal and Djokovic in the same tournament. I mean, we have all the evidence in front of us. He's beaten, he's beaten everybody there. And for me, he's top three in tennis right now. The rankings say number six. He is top three and he's fighting for, for number one, I, I would say already. 
And I think Novak Djokovic just said a couple days ago that in his mind, Alcaraz is the best player right now on the men's tour. And it's there pretty hard to argue <laughs> against that. Yeah. And you know what? I like getting hyped up about, about tennis, getting excited about the yes. possibility, the prospect. It just anything that ignites that sort of passion in me, and I'm sure other tennis fans feel the same way. It's great for the sport. It's wonderful to to see this. And and I don't care necessarily who he reminds me of. I don't need to compare him to anyone else. Although I don't mind if that's your thing and you like making comparisons. Like whatever, whatever works for you, you know, tennis fans sure. is fine with me if it's positive. And I just I find his game super exciting. I love his enthusiasm. I'm loving the way he's handling this pressure. Uh, the well he's the way he's playing well on on multiple surfaces as well. Hard court success, clay court success. And now, of course, the way he's beating the, the greatest of all time in the sport, back-to-back in Nadal and Djokovic. I mean, we just got to throw in Federer on grass this summer, and that'll be <laughs> yeah, the, the right. grand trifecta yeah. for Alcaraz. Um, and so it's, uh, it's pretty cool, to say the least. He's come through for me in the Tennis Canada Bracket Challenge and got me back to a respectable level on the men's side. So There you go. Muchas gracias for that. And, um, and I'm just, yeah, it's, it's rare that someone comes along in the sport uh, male or female that gets everybody riled up like this and so i'm just enjoying the buzz that's uh, created by him at the moment and and look it's not just fan and media buzz like his fellow uh, players on tour are caught up in the hype they they think he's incredible i mean nadal is like a fanboy he posted on instagram about his title just the other day i think like awesome. they abs- they absolutely love him they're they're enthralled by what he's doing on this tennis court um it's it's incredible he was ranked number 120 this time a year ago he's chalked up four titles on the season and even when he has lost i mean to Berrettini in five sets in Australia, who was playing awesome, to Nadal at Indian Wells in a three-setter when Nadal was unbeaten on the year, and then one I maybe semi-surprising loss to Sebastian Corda, who's a great American player. I mean, he's he's just checked all the boxes, and you look at his game, I mean, it's frightening to think that he can get better, and I don't really see like a deficiency in his game. I, I mean, back of the court, unbelievable power, his speed. He might be the fastest guy on tour that that we've seen currently, maybe him or, or Dimenauer. Um, tactics, he, he's just, he's the whole package and he's only going to get better, which I think is a frightening prospect, honestly, for the rest of the tour for the next 10 to 15 years. Absolutely. And you talked about all these people who were enthralled by him. I'm sure one guy who's not enthralled right now is Zverev, who got crushed. <laughs> That's six, true. Three, six, one. And it's it's interesting to note that that didn't surprise most of us. I don't know, maybe the scoreline no. did, but right. but the fact that Alcaraz won did not surprise. Um, the fact that he beat Nadal didn't surprise me in the sense that Nadal is still working his way back into, you know, game shape, yes. peak shape. He's not there yet. I thought actually it was encouraging from Nadal that he went three sets with Alcaraz, who's younger mm-hmm. and and fresher and and uh, has been playing so great lately. So. You know, if I'm a Nadal fan, that's got to be actually kind of encouraging. Um, and Djokovic, you know, Djokovic is getting back to um, almost you know, his best uh, at the moment as well. So um, I think this is going to make for a super interesting French Open. How is this draw going to play out? Where might these players be placed and how early may they face each other? Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to get some good ones. And and how does Alcaraz, he's looking great in best of three. How's it going to translate in best of five, which is still something where... 
you know, you got to give the Nadals and Djokovic's the the edge in terms of the experience to work themselves into those matches. Look That's at right. what Nadal did at the Aussie Open against Medvedev. You know, they don't give; they're never going to give up, no matter what the score is. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty stoked for the French Open, and and I got to say something about the clay court season just in general that I really like is the build up. You know, the crescendo. Like mm-hmm. grass court season is so short, right? There isn't really a huge build up. The hard court season is split between the early part of the year and then the summer. But the clay season is this sort of one fluid rising and you can sense the excitement as we go from Madrid to Rome and then to Paris. And uh, we're, we're getting close now. We're getting close. We are. And also just the, the, the changes in, I mean, the altitude change when you're playing at the Madrid Open to, to Rome, which is a different type of clay surface. There, there are different elements to the clay season as, as we move along. Um, you're certainly right, I think, about Novak Djokovic, a positive tournament for him. For me, I mean, I don't think there was another player in the field who was ready to beat Novak except for Carlos Alcaraz, and he produced that that high of a level. So Rome should be very interesting. I'm saying Nadal might be the favorite given that he's won 10 times, so we'll see what happens. Just touching on the Canadians, I feel like this was a positive step for Felix Ogiel-Yassim, um, not only just from reaching the quarterfinals of a Masters 1000 on the clay, which is a great sign, but a couple big-time wins, specifically a round of 16, just blowing past Yannick Sinner, 6-1, 6-2. I have to say I didn't expect that. I certainly thought he has a chance to win. This could be a very competitive match, but dropping just three games to a, a talent like Sinner, that's a big-time step in the right direction. I had Sinner going to the finals in that <laughs> so <laughs> Okay. <That's laughs> but I'm happy for Felix because I'm, yeah. you know, I'm a Felix fan. I don't mind saying that. He's a great guy. Um, He's a head scratcher this year, though. Hey, eh? Felix, like it's mm-hmm. just hard to sort of peg him in the sense that uh, started off so well, and you thought, oh, he's grabbing the ball and he's just going to go with it now. He's really going to assert himself as that top 10 guy. And then, you know, backwards. So, look, it's a learning curve and learning process. And the only disappointment stems from the fact that you want to see them, you know, achieve that for themselves and their, their family and their team and, and for tennis at large in our country. Uh, but yeah, this is obviously um, very encouraging. And um, and between him and Dennis and the fact that Milos and Vashik are both still out, um, you know, Felix is sort of, yeah, carrying our, our hopes, so to speak, in men's singles at this time uh, for, for the Maple Leaf, right? Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, Denis Shapovalov did open with a win over Ugo Amber, who's really struggled this season. And then uh, for me, that was probably Andy Murray, one of his best wins in a long time, beating uh, Shapovalov in the second round, 6-1, The disappointing part, we were so hyped for Murray versus Djokovic for a 37th time, and then uh, Murray caught an illness and and pulled out. But uh, Dennis, mm, not particularly impressive in Madrid. I don't have such high hopes for him on the clay, to be honest. Well, I mean, Dennis, now that we're recording this, we can talk about his first round uh, victory in yeah. Rome, which got overshadowed, unfortunately, by um, his on-court sort of antics and another outburst, which is sort of becoming, I'm just speaking for myself here, becoming a little bit too regular for him. Mm-hmm. It's not a good look. I can't repeat, you know, what he said on the court. Yeah, uh, Obviously, we can't clean that up enough for nope. this Tennis Canada podcast of ours, but uh, it's just not a good look. And there's kids in the crowd and I got little kids and I'm looking forward to bringing them this summer to the national bank open. And I don't want my kids having to hear that, you know, and 
And like, you know, if we go back to when he hit the ball in frustration there a few years ago at Davis Cup, I think it was, and yeah. hit the umpire, right? Which was really unfortunate and clearly not what he intended, but he's responsible for his actions out there. And you just would have thought something like that might've made him sort of step back and take a good look in the mirror. And even though he hasn't done anything of that magnitude, and hopefully we never see something like that again, what we're seeing in these, you know, the complaining and the finger pointing and just the, you know, I don't know if it's just he's masking his own disappointment in his own inconsistent play or what the reason behind it is, but dude needs to find a way to sort of chill out and uh, take a good look because he's what 23 years old now you're not 18 you're not a teenager anymore it's getting old and I you know I do like Dennis I think he's got a lot of positive qualities I think he's a good guy uh, but he's got to learn how to handle those negative emotions better because you're not pulling any fans over to your side when you do that Mm -hmm. and it's really hard for anyone to defend that kind of behavior I can't you know personally speaking yeah yeah well said um he he did um offer up an apology after the match to the chair umpire he's seemingly recognizing after the fact he was in the wrong but you have to be able to control your emotions which as you said he seems to struggle to do uh too often couple news and notes before we go this is sad really i i think it's just a sad story in tennis that that boris becker is is headed to prison great champion six-time slam champion and um look the this is a, a sentence of two and a half years in prison for for hiding assets to avoid paying his debts he got into all types of financial trouble i, I don't know how this happened issues with the divorce and some serious mistakes and and he's paying for it and i i just think it's sad it is um it is really tough when you see a, a player that you idolized as a kid and for me i mean like i i worshiped boris becker when i was a kid i was like seven eight nine years old when he was winning slams at wimbledon and that's what hooked me to the sport was was watching those battles you know i've talked about it at length in the past on the podcast what it meant to me and and how much of a tennis fan boris becker made me with his diving volleys exciting play um it's really tough then as an adult when you realize that, yeah, that guy that you really worshipped as a kid um, doesn't deserve that kind of adulation anymore for the decisions that they've made and, and the way they've handled themselves in their post-playing career. Um, I, I wish him the best. I, I hope that he learns from this um, mm-hmm. experience, this penalty. Uh, it's obviously deserved. Um, but it is really tough to see, especially because I know players back then didn't make the same kind of money as players today. And the, you know, endorsement deals weren't nearly as big either, but Boris Becker, Becker made a ton of money, right? More money than most people ever see in a lifetime. And, you know, not everybody is good with their finances. And that goes for people who make money like you and me at our level and, and people who make millions upon millions of dollars. And we see that in several sports, whether it's gambling addictions or, or just yep. mismanaging in poor, uh, you know, business deals and, um, and, and financial transactions. Uh, it, you know, it's his own demise. He's responsible for it. Um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but he's paying the price now and uh, hopefully comes out of it on the other side and, and, and learns from it. Because, uh, yeah, there was no avoiding it this time and, and trying to be sneaky clearly uh, did not work to, to his advantage. So, yeah. again, tough for me to see someone tainted in that way. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess I'll just wrap on that right there. Yeah, and um, last note, 
more of a positive note because I think he had a wonderful career. I think he's a wonderful guy. You know, you and I have had the chance to speak with Kevin Anderson a couple of times on this podcast. He's officially uh, hanging up the rackets, calling it a career, really impressive career for, for a player of his caliber coming from South Africa, which is not known as a tennis hotbed to make two slam finals, 2017 U.S. Open, 2018 Wimbledon final as well, uh, get to world number five, qualify for the uh, world tour finals in 2018. Um, someone who I think really gave it his all and found a way to get better into his thirties, which is a, a difficult quality to have to peak later in your career, I, I think is the most impressive aspect of Kevin Anderson. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember the first time I saw him play, which was in 2008 in uh, DC at the then Lake Mason classic and big serve obviously noticed that right away but mm-hmm. never looked at him and thought hey here's a future grand slam finalist or multi grand slam finalist and so what he achieved was very remarkable i think he's probably one of the more unexpected grand unexpected grand slam finalists of his generation and i don't mean that as an insult i nope. more than anything mean that as a compliment to him mm-hmm. and we had him on the pod several times he was always great for us And before we had Kevin on the podcast, we had his wife, Kelsey, on the podcast. And she told us, I was just kind of going through that interview um, leading up to recording with you tonight. And she told us what a long journey it was for them and how much hard work it was for Kevin to get to his first Grand Slam final at the U.S. Open. And it, I think it meant more to them, the fact that that success. And I, I say them because they were really a great partnership in terms of what you want to see from a tennis couple Um, They were a great example of what you can achieve and how you can support each other. And um, that hard work paid off and it was so nice to see it. And uh, I don't want to bug them as they just enter into this new phase of life uh, in Mm. retirement, but we'll definitely reach out. And I want to say is a very good chance that we have Kevin or Kelsey or maybe both of them back on the pod for you and me to talk to, um, to sort of wrap up his career and, and talk about what their plans are in the future Two great people. I mean, they, they shared with us their charitable works and endeavors, which were yep. numerous. I'm sure they're going to be, you know, pushing that now and putting more time into that. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing what's in store for them. Just uh, two of the real nice people in the tennis world, for sure. Definitely. Anytime you beat Roger Federer at Wimbledon, we, we etch you in the history books forever. Beyond the Grand Slam finals, that, that's something um, we, we will never forget. So congrats to him for a great career. Thank you to Hotel X for this episode of Matchpoint Canada. Guys, we will talk to you next time.